Welcome to Dwelling in Magic. I'm Angie, and today I am just so excited to introduce you to this truly spectacular guy. It's the one and only Chris Larson. You are going to love him. You're going to be inspired by him, and you're going to love all of the stories that he tells. It's just, ah, oh, what a spectacular way to spend an hour. So I hope you have fun. Stick around. And what do you say we just hit the trail? Giddy up. I am so excited to be sitting here this evening across from this extraordinary human at his sprawling studio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Chris Larson is a world-renowned and celebrated artist whose body of work knows no bounds. He creates immense and beautiful sculptures and mind-bending films. His pieces and installations transport you to another world completely. Some of his sculptures remind me of ancient machines like the torture device in the movie The Princess Bride that sucked years of life out of the main character, Wesley. If you don't know that reference, just imagine huge wooden machines with wheels and cranks and pulleys that operate like ancient machinery but are toiling on in futility. A sculpture of such magnitude that it fills up an entire museum room. Or another sculpture, an entire house constructed and covered in thick, milky layers of ice. And then Oh, but another house that he built and he put on the water and then he filmed a whole beautiful and evocative scene inside while it floated on the water. Oh my gosh. My mouth is agape and wonder whenever I am around his work. I don't even pretend to understand some of it on an intellectual level. It's more a visceral experience for me. Like how in the world did he make this and what depths did he dive to? To me, Chris is a modern-day Renaissance man, able to create beauty through so many different mediums. Photography, drawing, film, sculpture, and performance art. Oh, and Chris is also a very talented musician, which is how I first encountered him, singing and playing a country gospel music band at the House of Mercy Church 22 years ago. Chris is currently a professor at the University of Minnesota where he teaches sculpture. And as if that isn't enough for one human... Chris and his wife, also named Chris, opened and operate a nonprofit, Second Shift, that offers free studio space and community for artists. I am astonished, and I am in awe of how he moves through the world. But you know, one of the things I love most about him is his humility and kindness. He wins huge awards and grants and fellowships and sells loads of art, but he operates from a, such a generous space. There's so little ego involved. It's so beautiful. So here we are. Hey, Chris. Angie. Hey, Cuz. How are you tonight? Um, good. That was beautiful. Oh, well, that was all... really so nice. Well, it's it's kind of like one of those what you maybe hear at your funeral, you know, <laughs> where your friend, your friends come up and talk about you. Yeah. You know? um, but thank you. Well, yeah. Yeah, I thank think you. maybe friends should hear that more often. Yeah. Maybe. Well, thank you for your time. Mm -hmm. Tonight, I want to explore what your inspirations are, what lights you up, and hear about your creative practices. And how in the heck you do all of these things. I, I just really am amazed by you all the time. I like to begin by lighting this candle. I like the sound of the match. And it represents our divine spark and all the light that we carry inside of us, each and every one of us. Well, I nice. want to start by asking you 
about your childhood, where you grew up, what little version of Chris was like, and I don't know, were you the best fort builder in the whole neighborhood? Or um, I think I was. I, you know, I grew up in East St. Paul um, until I was in second grade. Um, I loved playing in the backyard. I loved pretending that we had a little garden that in the wintertime it would um, melt and then all the water would gather in it and I would put my sled in there and <laughs> pretend I was floating in the garden. And um, then we moved to Lake Elmo, which is now kind of a suburb. Back then it was pretty rural. Um, at one moment we had a horse. You did? That I didn't we got, know that. That we got from a camp that I went to and they would lend out the horses in the summer mm-hmm. and people would, or in the winter time, and you'd take care of them, named Pecos. And so we cared for the horse for one year. So it, it was like fields and, and we lived on a couple acre lot on a lake and it was so beautiful. We found old, what I would consider ancient farm equipment, because Lake Olson, the lake we, we were on, was once uh, they farmed it, and then it filled in with water. Yeah, it was a magical, magical place that I spent a lot of time just by myself in the woods, making things and building forts. So yeah, it was like my little sculptor as a little kid mm-hmm. um, space. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Do you yeah. have a big family? I have um, four other siblings, mm-hmm. um, right in the, right in the middle, the third child, um, traditionally known as the peacemaker, mm-hmm. and a mom and a dad. They're all still alive. That's nice. Yep, yeah. and super supportive of what I do. Really? Yeah. That's even a bigger gift. Yeah. That's awesome. In, in high school, were you in the art clubs, or when did you become interested in art? I didn't know what it was in high school or even, I liked to draw as a kid and I think I drew the same thing again and again. It was a house with an apple tree and me in the tree and then took high school art classes but I never, it was more about like imitating something, right, like replicating something. I was painting like clash posters that I had in my my bedroom and making objects like that and mm-hmm. so it, wasn't, it didn't feel like it was a a way of an ex- expression. It was more like replication, like just do illustrating something. Mm-hmm. And then first year college, I went to school just outside of Chicago. They had no art department there. And then I had a friend back in the Twin Cities that I was in grade school with that started at, we'll say the B word, it was Bethel <laughs> Bethel <laughs> College and um, this little school in, in St. Paul. And he said, there's this really amazing professor that you should um, come meet. And so on one of my breaks from college, came back and visited John and stepped into the art department. And it was my first time. I didn't take shop in high school. I didn't take, I never worked with tools or anything. We had one screwdriver in our house that was kind of bent up. So we didn't, it wasn't from a house of like builders. And so I walked into the wood shop one day and I was just like, this is so amazing. And he said, pick up some wood. So I picked up some wood and I went over to the bandsaw. And I was like, this is incredible. I can do things with my hands. And then I saw what John was doing. I was like, this seems like it, it's something I could, um, I could live with and, and, and be. I still didn't know what that meant, that it could be a career. It could be anything beyond just my playing around. And, but that's how it kind of started. It was playing around, mm-hmm. right? Back, hmm. like when you were a kid, playing yeah. around in the woods. Yeah. But I think, it, you know, I think looking back, like, music was so important to me as a kid, even going back to, like, 
I remember my mom was a huge Elvis fan, mm -hmm. and when Elvis died, it was 10 years old, 1966, and it had a huge impact on her. And, and I listened to her records that she had, and I was just like, this is pretty incredible. Just like this voice and this power to like reach a little 10-year-old kid. And I thought, I don't know, maybe it's later that I can rethink of like, I think I wanted to be a part of that conversation of like making something and then putting it out into the world felt desirable. Mm -hmm. And I think it was when punk rock, you know, I like discovered the clash. It was just like these four people from England creating this sound that sounded the same chords as Elvis, but creating this like some kind of conviction in your, their voice. And it made me want to change my clothes cut my hair and be different in the world and that, that held some power to me. And I think I just, I wanted to be involved with that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was my first move, mm -hmm. my first exit, you know, in life to like go that way versus going this way. And I'm pointing forward to those podcast listeners. I'm going forward and taking a right turn or left turn. Mm -hmm. And you started playing music did you play with anybody in your family, or did you Nobody. just... No, no, I was in... I played trumpet in did? band. <laughs> I did. And terrible. I was always, like, the last chair. But I always told people I was the first chair, because you couldn't tell. <laughs> if you're at the end, you can say you're the first. But, no, I was terrible. I, could, I couldn't... I couldn't figure that thing out. But music I loved, and there was a... There was a... I think it was, like, a Lovin' Spoonful song that I just... It was called Darlin' Be Home Soon or something like this. And I was just like, if I can learn that one song, that's all I want. And so I think my brother Kenny taught me some chords on the guitar. And I learned that song, and then he'd want to learn another song and another song. And I think he just said, why don't you try writing a song? And I wonder what that would feel like. And I wrote, you know, these kind of cheesy songs. But it felt like the first time I had created something that was my own and my voice. And it felt so good to hear it coming out of me. And I liked my voice because it's kind of high and kind of sweet and... Yeah, so got a band together with my brother. Really? Um, what was your band called? We were called the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys. And it came out right about the same time as that, I think it was a vampire movie. Hmm. Um, I forget who was in it, but um, we felt it was kind of a bonus, a movie comes out. But, but we played around town, and we played at like 7th Street Entry and Williams Pub, and it was just kind of this little punk rock harmony-based guitar-driven pop in. We put out a cassette tape. Oh my gosh, do you have that cassette tape? I do. I want to hear that someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Do you and Kenny um, play together anymore? Um, you know, we, we used to put out these tapes called under the, um, what do you call it, moniker or like pseudonym of uh, Trapper Keeper. Ah. And we would do tapes that we would just write. We'd get together and we'd write like 20 songs. And some are crazy, some are driven by a drum machine, and some were, we had all these like LPs that had drum tracks on it that we would just play over. And they were, they were kind of silly, but kind of funny and sometimes really serious. But those tapes, we've made a bunch of those tapes, and I love, love, I hope we can make another one. Oh, you should. Mm -hmm. That'd be awesome. Have you mm -hmm. ever sat and listened to them on recent years? Um, I listened to the last one we did, and it's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a fun ride. I'll, I'll play it. I don't know if I have it here, but I'll play it for you. Okay. Yeah. I'd love that. Mm -hmm. So you're in college, and you are in the shop room and starting to love it. Did you have any mentors that kind of helped guide you through those early years of making stuff? Yeah, it was um, Stuart Luckman, and he was this... He seemed like he was seven feet tall, and he was broad-shouldered, big. He had big, curly hair, white, and he's the same age as I am now as a teacher at the professor at the U. And so, he seemed so much older. I was twenty-one or twenty-two or something like that, and he was just a force. And I ended up not hardly saying anything. He would do all the talking, and I was just like, like a sponge absorbing this knowledge and this inspiration and um, he had high expectations and I think he was a good person at that moment in my life because I wanted I um, was kind of a people pleaser and wanted to learn that part of sculpture something I knew nothing about and he was just so incredibly hard on me and just pushed the hell out of me yeah he he passed away two years ago um, oh. about and I went out to the celebration and was really great and still in contact with his family. But he was such a force in my life and at the right moment at the right time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful soul. Stuart. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How was he hard on you? What Would, did he look like? You know, I was his TA for three years. I think I lasted the longest out of any TA he ever had just because his expectations were so high. And he would kind of flip the rug on you constantly. And I would, you know, be in the person I am wanting to get it right would show up an hour before he got there and I would set the whole studio up for his lecture, got the slide projector ready, got all the stools set up, and he would come in, he's like, Larson, it's not a lecture day. This is a this is a studio day. Get this stuff out of here. So I would like scramble and I'd for sure the next day I was like got all the tools set up. He's like, Larson, where's my lecture stuff? I'm lecturing today. And so I was like constantly, mm -hmm. constantly tripping me up like that and it just made me work harder in the studio of whatever I was doing because it was after all my duties done with TA I then started to do my own thing and I just I kind of had that voice in the back of my head like just do it like just keep making keep making he never really taught like do this or do that so the first assignment is like okay next class bring a sculpture in and I brought in probably the worst sculpture I've ever made. It was like a wire guy with a guitar like this, and it was the stiffest, most stupidest thing in the world, and he just tore me apart on that one. He's like, don't make something, just like discover, you know? Like just get aboard and start, let the material talk to you. Mm -hmm. And this is what I do till today. It's like I just, I let the material speak. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I'm heavily influenced by anything that comes into my studio. And that's how we taught. It was like, there was no like formal instruction, I would say. It was more like his voice just got caught in a loop in the back of my head. Yeah, he was amazing. And he just said, you know, he's like, what do you want? I was like, I want to go to the best graduate school in, in the country. Which was? Which was Yale at, at the time. I don't know if it still is. But um, he's like, then you're going to need to step it up. Mm -hmm. And so I worked my ass up. I just worked and worked and worked and built and built and built. And uh, and he just kept pushing. He just wow. kept pushing. Are you like that? And Are you like him as a professor? Not at all. No? No, I think I'm, I'm the more quieter... I've heard, I've heard I'm intimidating mm -hmm. just because of my quietness. And, but I think I just, I'm very careful about what I say mm -hmm. and that I don't beat students down, you know. I mean, <laughs> talking harsh about Stuart, but he was feared, you know. Mm -hmm. He was really feared. And I don't, I don't know. I think I'm respected. I'm think, I've heard they get nervous about me critiquing their work, but mm -hmm. I think for the most part, I don't know what, how that's useful, mm -hmm. you know. I think... He, I'm more of a generative <laughs> critiquer. Yeah. Right. Wow. Um, That's a gift to your students. Like identifying strengths, not mm -hmm. identifying weaknesses. And sometimes through identifying the strengths, you discover your own weaknesses. Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh. I wish I mm -hmm. could take one of your classes. That'd be <laughs> really fun. Line you up. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll tell you one last story about Stuart. I want to hear time. one. Okay. So. I got, so we went to FedEx to drop my application off for Yale. Mm -hmm. And we were going through all this stuff that was like 10 minutes to 7 before it had to be shipped off for the deadline. And he's like, where's your artist statement? I was like, I don't have one. He goes, he asked the FedEx person to get a FedEx piece of paper. We flipped it over and he's like, start writing. And it must have looked like a ransom note, you know, just because it was like my spelling's terrible. My penmanship is terrible but we sent it off I went up for an interview and I eventually got in but I got the letter of acceptance to Yale in the in the mailbox at school and I brought it back and showed Stuart and he gave me a big hug a big bear hug and said congratulations well deserved and all the other my friend my the students were like super excited and congratulating and there was a lot of excitement and he came out of his office and he goes Larson get the shit out of the garbage cans and get the courtyard cleaned up. And I was like, didn't give me one moment of, but it also taught me just like, don't be hung up on these things, right? You made it to mm -hmm. the next thing. Like, get back to work, right? Don't yeah. relish in the, in the thing. And I think I've hung up with that. It's just like, I don't, things happen and then you just move on to the next thing. So That's amazing. That's my last story. I love that one. Thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that. Yeah. What was it like at Yale? Incredible. Mm -hmm. Most of, I was so green. I knew nothing. I knew nothing about contemporary art, and your class. You there was no classes really. You just showed up and you were expected to just work in the studio. And I worked for fifteen hours a day, every day, Monday through Sunday, and I was just in heaven. And your teachers were the visiting artists that came through, mm -hmm. and it was the most amazing artists coming from New York to visit your studio. I mean, I think those became my mentors, you know, people that inspired me. And there was one, tell me if I'm talking too much. No, it's okay. great. There was a, a artist, Richard Serra, who's probably the most famous living artist right now. Really? Right? If you look, I mean, there's a lot of really famous living artists, but he's like one of the, the big ones out there. And he, I signed up for him, and everybody's like, you have to see Richard Serra. And so everybody wanted to see him. So you only get 
15 minutes with Richard Serra. And I had made this sculpture. I was using trees at the time. And I, if you can imagine like a full-size hemlock tree, and then I cut it into about four-foot lengths, and then I joined it back together kind of like a snake, like a, if you would think about like if you could make it movable, mm-hmm. right? Like one of those, I don't know, you've seen those snakes that yeah. they're toys. But I put it back together, and then I made this huge like circular thing that went up in the air kind of like a urobro so the snake eating its tail but it's like this tree went up in the air and went around and it would I didn't think it would support itself so I built this elaborate crutch to hold the thing up and that's when Richard Serra entered the room and he came in he's a kind of smaller Italian guy he's like okay what's going on here and I was like oh it's this I cut this tree up and I put it back together and into this 12-foot circle and it weighed probably, I don't know, maybe 600 pounds, right? And it needed, and so he's like, what's up with the, with the brace? I was like, I don't think it will hold the sculpture up. He mm-hmm. goes, pull it out. I was, like, I was like, Richard, it's like 600 pounds. He goes, I know how much it weighs. Because he works with huge steel mm-hmm. pieces. And he said, pull it out. And I was like, I'm afraid it's going to, he goes, let's pull it out together. So we both oh. grabbed it. And we pulled the thing, pulled the thing out, and got out of the way, and it just kind of like settled down, and it settled into place. And he looked at me, and he goes, "Mean what you say, and say what you mean." And then he walked out the door, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" And wow. amazing moment. And I think from then on, it was just like, "Don't mess around. Like, if this is, was the intention, then do what you intended to do. Don't put crutches under things hmm. to make things stand." So, mm-hmm. yeah, so many moments like that. Um, Are you still in contact with? No, no, not him. I, but any friends from no, that I mean, time? Richard Sarah was my one fifteen minutes yeah. with Richard Sarah. But some classmates I am in contact with Rico, Rico Gatson, who I went to undergrad with. He went to Yale too, and then I followed him in oh, his wow. footsteps. And um, yeah, we still keep in contact. He's kind of like my Bethel brother. You've made things with Rico before, haven't you? Have you collaborated with? Yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did a collaboration here in the studio and. Um, yeah, that was a great project. Really fun. Kind of about friendship and music and sharing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really wonderful thing. About mm-hmm. I, wa- I wanted to talk to you about collaboration because you, I know that you've collaborated with a lot of artists and studio assistants and students on a lot of your projects, mm. right? And I had firsthand experience of being pulled into your creative orbit when we made music together at House of Mercy. And yep. I just, I don't know, I loved every moment of that. It was total blast but the biggest gift of all I think was the confidence that you built up in me and you said you should make an album it's like I can't write song or I you know I just didn't think that I could write a song but you helped you wrote some songs and I wrote some songs and we made this album and it was such an amazing experience and such a gift that you Mm. I think you I've seen you do that with a lot of people Mm. it seems like you just you can build people up and make them believe help them believe in themselves and Mm. I don't know. I'm That's super so grateful nice. for that. That's so nice to hear. Oh, it's yeah. true. That was a special record to make with you, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think thinking about there's people on this planet where your voices just align with when you sing. Mm-hmm. And I think you're one of those people. It's like where you don't, there's no second guessing where the voice is going to go. It just like blends mm-hmm. and kind of makes this one super, super unique one voice out of two. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where you, one by itself is something one by itself but together they just made this really really unique sound that 
Yeah, I have such fond memories of that. Yeah, it was really um, an awesome time. And, and we took it out to Philadelphia. We took it to Philadelphia, and yes, we, we did. we played around town, so that was really fun. It was super fun. And, yeah. I mean, I think people are put on your journey meant to be your friends and help you along the way and you have been that for me and when we had been playing together for a couple years it was Mm. the time that you got the job at the U and you're leaving House Mercy Band and there was a service to celebrate what you'd given to the Mm. church and you Mm -hmm. really but your dad was there and my dad was there and it was that night that we realized that we were related so we didn't even know that that's pretty special cousins Cousins. that's a neat little magic moment I think (laughs) you have a studio assistant right now yep what Tell me about your assistant. Um, Corey is a a musician, also Mm -hmm. a visual artist. And my former studio assistant, um, Jordan, who's now moved to New York um, to pursue their own career in New York, I was looking for somebody to do some writing for me, to do some research on um, a project that I was doing. And it was a time that I felt, I don't know, a little stretched Mm -hmm. and needed something that Jordan, because I had Jordan on so many different projects that... She was like, hey, my friend Corey can write, is a good writer. Why don't we see how this goes? And so sent her what I wanted to research. And this volumes came back of like what she had done. And I was just like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And then then met them. And just you could just tell. You can tell with some people that they're, they're focused and they're looking forward. And they're just, you know, the other thing, Jordan... Um, I've had a couple. Alan, who you've, mm-hmm. Alan Gerlach, who you've worked with. Yeah. Amazing photographer, and I love obsessive people. Mm-hmm. And Alan is one of those people that is so keyed into what he does, and he can get the best thing out of any single camera on this planet. Oh, which my gosh. Is, he's just, yes. just an amazing person. But I think that both Jordan and Corey both came from small towns in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and I think the work ethic is just off the charts with those people Mm -hmm. and Jordan was just a workhorse and Corey is just a workhorse Mm -hmm. they come they put their head down they leave their phones aside Mm -hmm. and they just work and they're there with you and they're there to support you and in turn I like to give back to them you know and support them however I can support them Jordan and I did this project we published a paper for about two years it was called in review and it was reviewing exhibitions in the Twin Cities and I was the publisher, Jordan was the editor, and just, I think it kind of, it was beneficial for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I think for her, getting to know a ton of artists in town, and also just getting the respect to people that, you know, that she well deserved. Mm -hmm. Corey, we've we've collaborated on some videos for her, for music. Serious Machine, check them out. Oh my gosh, And um, Well, I was asking Alan, what is something that you got out of working with Chris? And he's like, I just, he was so inspired about your work ethic. That's the exact words he used. He's like, I can't believe how hard Chris works mm. at what he does. And he just is super inspired by you in that way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Alan's a dear friend. Yeah, he said, Such. and you connected over so many things. Like he's a snow skater. Is that what's yep. Yes, I always mess that up. snow skater. Yep. <laughs> but he was talking about all of the times that he tries things and fails at it and tries and fails the repetition and failure he's like it was very similar to how you work too like you just found that common thread which is really cool and i think alan got you know he got that of like where we're heading today might be where we're not heading tomorrow Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of it depends on 
where it leads, right? Mm -hmm. And you follow that. And sometimes, you know, we worked on a project for maybe a year and it didn't go anywhere and it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a lot of investment just in terms of labor and time and, but it just, it, but it, it turns into something else. And you follow those trails, right? Mm -hmm. You have to. Yeah, you I always do. finish things, right? Finish them. Even a bad piece of art. Mm -hmm. I was making some pretty bad art about a month ago. Were you really? I was. I can't believe that. I was. It was, yeah, it was. But that coming off of a really amazing show that you just had in Chicago in April, which oh, I was at, which is really so yeah, cool. I'm so can grateful. you tell me? I'm can so you tell? You all came down. Oh, that was so special. Yeah. It's fun to celebrate your friends. Mm -hmm. What was that project? Can you tell me about it? Um, sure. It was based out of a, it was a three and a half year project. And what happened in Chicago was the culmination of three years of work in the studio. And um, based out of a rural garment factory in rural Tennessee. And it had been in operation for about 50 years and shut down in the late 90s. And I was able to get access to the space and wrote a grant to the Guggenheim Foundation and mm. they what I said I was going to move my studio from St. Paul Minnesota down to Tennessee for a year and they loved it and wanted yeah. to support it mm -hmm. so I moved down there for about a year and worked out of the space but then started to extract things from the factory like 25,000 spools of industrial thread came to St. Paul um, a bunch of sewing machines and tons and tons of stuff and then I just started making art out of all this stuff mm -hmm. based on you know labor and bodies and repetition and um, um, ideas like that mm -hmm. and um, so it was about 56 new pieces of work were in oh Chicago gosh. including film and video and sculpture and um, yeah it was really great that's amazing really great is it hard to lay it down once you've been investing so much time and energy? Hard to let go and move on, or were you ready? I'm usually pretty good at starting the next thing. Mm -hmm. So I come back to the studio with something already in motion, and I tried some things, and it just didn't transpire. Hmm. And so I came back and gutted the whole thing mm -hmm. down to nothing and tried to start over again. That's where it's it's difficult, you know. After thirty five years of doing it, I think I would be good at just picking up where I left off. But I'm always mm -hmm. constantly starting at zero mm -hmm. and a blank page, and that's always it's exciting, but it can be terrifying, mm -hmm. right? Corey had given me two books that were really important: Empire of Time, which I've been reading. The other one is called Flights by Olga, and I'm not going to say their name right, but um, Tukok. Kurtuk, um, Polish writer, which I'm so inspired by both these books. Someone in Chicago gave me that book, and it made me think about like what we're sitting under right here. I wanted to, as I was looking at, I have a calendar on the to the my right for those listeners, and it's a count. This is traditional calendar, has horses on it, super <laughs> nice. But as I was noticing, it was like days kept getting crossed off, and then they, it got flipped to the next date and it kind of felt like it disappeared like the past disappeared and I'm always forward thinking but it just felt like what if I like invented a new calendar to visualize this it's built in a spiral and it starts at the bottom and it goes up as you're at November 2nd you can look across the calendar and you can see 19th and when you're at the 19th you can still see the second mm -hmm. right and as you're at the 31st you can still so it's sort of like dissolves 
it dissolves time. It makes it less linear, right? Mm-hmm. Blurring the lines of time. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I attempted to do with the calendar. And this is where this project started. Now you see this new sculpture video set that's out there. It's trying to do that of like blurring 400 years of time mm-hmm. into one space. Whoa. I cannot wait to see where Chris's latest project leads. You know, I always experienced the blurring of time or being in a time warp when I was making music with the Ranch Hands or the House of Mercy Band. We had so much fun, so many laughs, such tight harmonies. It was the best. But with COVID and busy lives, it's been quite some time since I've been able to sing with my cuz. So I asked him to bring his guitar and choose a song. And here's a musical interlude for your enjoyment. So Ange, this is one of my favorite songs to sing with you. Just because it, I mean, it it comes from a history of duets. Mm-hmm. First with Everly Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then again with... Graham and Emmy. Graham and Emmy. Mm-hmm. And... I think we're we're borrowing it from Graham and Emmy because mm-hmm. I think we both share a love of that whole that um, those two singers. But mm-hmm. I love singing this song with you, and I think we sound great together on this one. Um, love hurts.
was fun. You know who talks about time, the fluidity of it, was Madeline Lingle. She's an author I've loved. She wrote this book. It's called Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Art, and she's just so cool. She wrote A Wrinkle in Time and oh, all of that. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, she's yeah. amazing. I know amazing, amazing lady. Okay, so this is from Walking on Water. If the work comes to the artist and says, here I am, serve me, then the job of the artist, great or small, is to serve. The amount of the artist's talent is not what it's about. I love that. For me personally, it's like maybe 1% talent. I don't even, it's not showing up, engaging with the material, and like you said, having faith, following that lead, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, It's this is nothing t about talent. This is about hard work and just like showing up. I show up early and I work late until mm -hmm. dinner. A lot of um, hours. From the outside, it looks like you have a lot of talent. So that's really interesting to hear that you're... The other thing, what came to my mind, when we were down in Chicago on the building next to the industrial building that we were installing in, there was a, um, a thing on one of the doors that said, be a horse. And I've been thinking about like that, what does that mean? And I had thought about this thing the other day. I'm not on social media. I'm not on the Instagram or Facebook or any of these things. And I think there's something about that people liking you or t like mm -hmm. um, thumbs up or whatever right. and I think what I came down to is like you're the a horse doesn't care if you're famous be a horse don't think about these things about like who's liking your things or it's mm -hmm. just like it it for me it's more of like put it out there in the world mm -hmm. and have a conversation because yeah. what I want as we circle back to the beginning of the thing that's all I wanted was like a dialogue mm -hmm. to happen and that happens when you put something out even though you aren't out there on social media or whatever, you do, you attract so many people. Everyone kind of flocks towards what you're doing next and are, is mm. super interested in it. And I think that's really beautiful. You're not looking for that. Maybe the accolades or the attention, but it comes. I'm super grateful make. for being a 56 year old artist and people still are paying attention are interested in what's coming mm -hmm. oh. oh my gosh well you put yourself out there and share yourself and you have to be very vulnerable to do that a yeah. lot of times have we ever done something any project or performance art or something you did you're just like oh my gosh this is so scary do you get scared put things out there i think when when i'm the most nervous i know there's i've done something right like mm. something good right i think when i feel like super confident this is going to be so incredible that's when it's the worst thing <laughs> or the worst piece of art in the world. So I think yeah. when I'm nervous yeah. is where I like to be, right? I don't, you care a lot when you're nervous about things too, I, I think. think so. No, 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 true. But I wanted okay. to ask you because you and Chris have built such a beautiful community in your second shift and I was mm. wondering if you'd... Yeah, second shift um, came out of, you know, growing up in a family that it was important to give back somehow to the place that you live and work and whether it be through volunteering or giving whatever you can give to give back and so I think we felt like there was um, studio space is such a um, hard thing to, to drop six to a thousand dollars a month plus your plus everything else a lot of studios were being priced out and bought up and saw a lot of our artist friends getting priced out and so we thought we'd go the opposite direction and give free studio space to artists in the Twin Cities and it's 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 um, catering to given to women artists and 
those non-gender conforming artists in the Twin Cities. And Mm -hmm. so that's been like a really great thing for Chris and I Mm -hmm. to work on together. So we bought a building, um, refurbished it, and now we're in our fourth year. So every year it's um, four new artists every year. Wow. Um, But yeah, it's been a bright spot. That's amazing. Um, Bright. Yeah. Over there in Payne Avenue, adding some life and beauty there. Mm. Well, I don't know, Chris. I'm super grateful for your time today. I think people are really going to love hearing from you. You're just such a cool guy. Um, Equally, too. You've been an inspiration. Thank you. Yep. Okay. What an incredible guy. I feel like I've been sitting around just talking, though. I need to get back to work. Doesn't he just make you want to work? Like, show up and engage with the materials at hand. Just get over yourself. Don't get hung up on your accomplishments. Get back to work. What are you doing? Don't mess around. (laughs) Do what you intend to do. Mean what you say. Say what you mean. And my takeaway, a horse doesn't care if it's famous. Don't you, can't you picture a clothing line with that t-shirt? A horse doesn't care if it's famous. (laughs) I freaking love that. Come back next week because there is another amazing artist blazing a trail in this world. And until then, friend, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?